Right. So, it's a good time of year to talk about joy. And we are just sort of exploring some of the themes that come with the birth of Christ in this season leading up to Christmas. And this, the, the series is titled, Open the Gift. And we're just going to look at the things that the gift of Christ brings into our own hearts and lives. And last week we looked at this idea of hope and how Christ brings hope into our lives. And this week I would like us to take a look at the word joy and what the ways in which God brings about joy in our hearts and lives through the birth of his son. For the sake of the series, I have chosen a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, that is actually a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it's, as most prophecies, it's, it's very layered and complicated and uh, in places a little bit difficult to sort out. But we're going to try to delve a little bit deeper into the passage this week than we did last week. And we're looking at a different aspect of the same diamond, if you will. The aspect of joy and how that comes out of the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ into our lives. So if you would, uh, read with me uh, in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7, and see if you don't uh, capture some of the disclosure of this idea of joy in this, prof- this prophecy uttered by uh, or through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I thought it might be interesting uh, to sort of roll from this prophecy that was written approximately 600 some odd years before Christ into the the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary on the occasion of her uh, conception 
And so Gabriel, this is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I'll read verses 32 and 33. But he's trying to explain to this probably 15-year-old girl uh, what's about to happen. And in that explanation, he says these words, which are the direct fulfillment of this prophecy that we just read. I just thought it would be interesting to include here. Gabriel says these words to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then later in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke records uh, what is said by the angels to the shepherds who are nearby outside of Bethlehem when Jesus is born. And I'll read those words as well from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So, we were in the middle school youth group Bible study a few weeks ago, and I think the question was asked, what is the difference between joy and happiness? What is the difference between happiness and joy? Do you remember your answer, Eric? All right, let's hear it. Happiness is positive feelings in good circumstances. When it's easy to have positive feelings. And joy is positive feelings in all circumstances. Yeah. I think Scott got up and wrote it on the board. It was one of those kind of moments. And joy is transcendent. And, you know, I, I was, I actually. Uh, when I'm stumped on a Bible thought, I usually call Lois. If you're ever stumped on a Bible thought, don't call me, call Lois. Um, well, you can call me, but I'll just tell you to call Lois, right? Um, but I was looking through this series, and I wanted, I wanted to sort of find the symbols for each of these concepts. So hope, there's a biblical passage we read last week. It's an anchor for our soul, so there's a symbol for hope. You can see it in the James Avery counter, right? You, they've got the little anchor thing there. Um, love, that's an easy one, just the heart. You know, forgiveness, the cross. Uh, pick one, there's probably a symbol. Joy is a tough one. There, there aren't... Any, like, obvious symbols, simple symbols for joy. So I called Lois. I'm like, Lois, help me out. Looking for the symbol of joy. And we, we batted around for a little while. And uh, 
I think we toyed with the idea of a butterfly and something else, wasn't it? There was something else. A flower. Um, butterflies and flowers. That was just for y'all. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, inside joke. Sorry, shouldn't do that. Uh, and then Lois goes, Tom, duh, a baby. I'm like, oh, duh. You know, a stork, a baby, that's the symbol for joy, right? And the problem, though, with babies as a symbol for joy is there's that, that joy at birth, and then they grow up. No offense, Tristan, no offense. Bear with me. Right, That sweet little precious bundle of joy is then later rolling her eyes and talking back. Not to you, Craig. Not to Craig. But, uh, yeah, you get the idea. And this birth that is prophesied in the book of Isaiah speaks of a joy that is everlasting. That doesn't grow up and roll its eyes at you but rather endures and abides and persists in spite of our circumstances. And I want us to begin there in this passage in verse 1. And again, I'll try to spare you most of this, but the Hebrew here, did you notice when we were reading this, it's, it's in poetic verse. Did you notice that, the structure of it? So basically when you're trying to understand a passage of scripture and it's in poetry in, in it was originally in Hebrew it it means it's going to be obtuse it's going to have it's going to work in ways that are very different from just straightforward sentences okay so it's hard to make complete sense out of these things but I want us to see in this passage first of all particularly in verse 1 this call to look past our circumstances Uh, In the beginning of the passage, it says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then the prophet rolls into three different regions of Israel that were considered sort of far off, forgotten, cut off, and invaded. They were lost, if you will. Places where hope had, had evaporated. And he, he speaks of this darkness and of this deep darkness in one case. Uh, and then, do you see where it says in verse 1, made glorious? So, the Hebrew word for glory, for God's glory, is the word for weight. It, it tells us that God's presence has weight. It has significance, if you will, the significance of God, the glory of God, the weight of God. That word can be used in a positive sense as as the weight, the glory of God, or it can be the heaviness of darkness and oppression. And and so this passage could, it, it the way it's translated here, it sort of ends on a high note. It was bad in Nebulun and Nephtali, uh, it'll be, but it was, it'll be good in Galilee. It could also say it was bad here, here, and then worse in Galilee. This was, they had it worse than everybody. It could go either way. But the important part 
is at the very beginning of the verse where it says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Regardless of whether the the thought of the verse goes up at the end or down at the end, whether that weight is good or bad on Galilee, the, the essence of the passage is the same, that God will take away our darkness. I want to talk about that for just a second, this idea that God knows your anguish. This is one of the things that is really astounding about human nature. We can have all of the comforts of life. We can have all of the advantages of life and still feel miserable. It defies the way we tend to think about the world. That if I just had this, or if I just had that, I wouldn't have any more problems. If I just had more income, if I just had this or that, or a better husband, honey. Yeah, if you just had a better husband, your life would be perfect. You've got it right there, yeah, in bright ink. But we think that our circumstances are the basis for our happiness, And in fact, they might be actually the basis for our happiness. When God says, in every circumstance, you can have it all and you can still be in anguish. Your soul can still be dark and hurting and lost and alone. The reason these words are written the way they are is because God knows your anguish He knows how it impacts you, how your own places of darkness affect your life, and he knows how that darkness controls you. Here's the way darkness works. When we feel despair, we turn inward. We isolate ourselves and we push others away. And in that isolation, we feel more alone, more forsaken, more despairing of our lives. And the reason these words are here is because God wants you to know he knows. He is aware of the anguish in our souls. He wants you to know that he knows, and he wants you to know your future is not defined by that darkness. The truth of who you are and who you will become is not defined by your despair. It is rather something that will be displaced. Your despair will be pushed out of your soul and replaced, if you will, by your value to Him. The weight that you have in God's plan. You are part of the glory of God, of his weight, of his impact on the world. He has a plan for you. He wants to use you to impact others. Your God is aware that life hurts. But he also says, look past that with me. I have something I want you to see, that this isn't the end. 
There is a glorious, weighty, important future with you in it. I have something I want you to do. And so, we're to look past our circumstances. And we're to look past our hindrances. There are some interesting uh, verses in through 2 through 5. Where, starting in verse 2, we're told about this light. That those who were in darkness will see light. The light will shine upon our hearts and souls. We're to step into this light. And we are to enjoy God's favor. That God loves you. He has chosen you. He is going to sustain you regardless of what this life brings his light will break in and shine we are to enjoy that favor and we are to rejoice in god's presence little phrase in verse three i don't know if you noticed it but it says in the middle of verse three they rejoice before you in other words we are a people who in spite of our sin, because of what Christ has done, we can stand before God and rejoice rather than tremble. We have been put in this place by the work of Christ, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But this is, in essence, what Christmas is all about. That God actually became one of us came into our presence and lived before us in face-to-face with us and gave himself for the forgiveness of our sins. We step into this light where we enjoy God's favor and God's presence and we're to break the grip of sin in our lives. This is a little bit We'll talk about this more next week, actually. But you see in verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. And then it says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I'll I'll try to explain all of that. Those words of burden, staff, rod, oppressor are all words that are just heaped into the books of Moses where it talks about the the slavery of God's people in Egypt. The yoke and burden of slavery being broken by God. This is poetry. So we we can take images that the author is painting and transfer their meaning onto things like sin, the burden the yoke, the rod of oppression that is our sin will be broken in Christ. And this passage is, it's fascinating on so many levels that a baby will take away our sin. The the focal point of the passage is just after uh, these two verses, four and five, where it says, for us, to us, a child is born. That is the child who will break the hold of sin on our lives. 
I don't know how Isaiah understood this. I do know how he understood it. It was through the, the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But it is just mind-blowing to me that someone 600-some-odd years before Jesus is born not just knows that he will be born, that God will become human, but that he will take away our sin, that this baby will shed light and hope and joy and forgiveness on God's people. Two things I want to bring out of this breaking of the grip of sin. One is the call to rely on the power of God's grace. Did you see that little reference, as in the day of Midian? I'll just be really quick. This is a story uh, from earlier in the Old Testament where a guy named Gideon is faced with an invading army of literally tens of thousands of soldiers who have come into territorial Israel to wipe them off the face of the planet. And Gideon, uh, very bravely, very bravely, says, God, if you want me to go out and face them, I'm going to take this, this sheep hide... And I'm going to lay it outside my tent. And in the morning, I can't remember which way it went, but if the hide is wet and the ground is dry, I'll go. I'll go fight. That'll be my sign from God. He wakes up. It is that way. He says, just to be sure, just to be sure, I'm going to lay it out again tonight. And if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, I'll go. And he wakes up the next morning and goes, I gotta go. And God basically tells him, don't take everybody. I want you to whittle down your, your fighting force. And he's like, um, not sure that's such a great idea. And God says, yep, whittle it down. He whittles it down. God says, that's not far enough. Get it down to 300. Gideon's thinking, you're going to have me take on like 30,000 troops with 300 guys. I don't like those odds. God basically says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some torches and some clay pots. And I want you to surround the valley where these troops are located. And in the middle of the night, I want you to light some torches and smash some pots. And then blow, every man's got a trumpet. A ram's horn. They're going to blow like that, kind of. They do this. The army in the valley goes into full-out panic. And as they run out of their tents and run into each other, they think that the other one's their enemy, and they're killing each other in their camp. And the next morning, the battle's over, and none of Gideon's men have killed anyone. Brilliant. Really. But how much fighting did Gideon do? Zero. How much of that battle was in God's hands? All of it. And God says the same thing to us with regard to our sin. The battle is mine. And I've I've fought the fight for you. I've defeated sin and death on the cross. You are forgiven. The victory 
is yours. And so Isaiah actually gets it that this battle between good and evil, between sin and holiness, between life and death, will be won exclusively by the hand of God, not by what we do or think or say. And this is the essence of the call to look past our hindrances, our sins that beset us, our failures, our fears, all of it are taken on the cross. And then the passage turns abruptly and brilliantly to its focal point, this call to look to the birth of God's Son as the source of our joy. So we've, we've dealt with all the things that, that work against our joy, our circumstances, the darkness of our soul, our sins, the oppression that we feel as a result of that. And now God says, lift your head and see the source of all joy, the ultimate birth, if you will. Take him into your heart. Now, when these readers heard the words, for to us a child was born, when Isaiah first prophesied this, they, they might have been tempted to think he was talking about a king named Hezekiah, who would be the, the descendant of David, who would fulfill some of the prophecies in this verse. And the reason they would have hoped that he was talking about Hezekiah was because Hezekiah's dad can't think of a nice enough word to use in church to describe this man. He was a bad person. A really, really bad person. And ironically, Hezekiah's son would be even worse. Like one of the biggest poo-poo heads in Jewish kingdom history. Like really, I'm, I'm, I'm not, these are bad, bad people. And Hezekiah sits in between these two terrible kings as this beacon of hope and light and maybe there is still a God. Um, But I want you to look at at the way these words are phrased and tell me if if a child who's just been born to to the bad king could actually be the, the final fulfillment of these words. To us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Great. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay. All right. Could be Hezekiah. Mighty God. Wait a minute. Uh, there are many, there are many men, kings in particular, who have aspired to be gods. Caesars and others, right? There's only one God who's ever aspired to become human. And that would be Jesus. So, for to us a child is born, his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't think we're talking about Hezekiah. And there's a very future forward-looking aspect to the words in this passage. They're looking way beyond the present circumstances to a birth that will change not only history, but my heart 
and your heart along with it. And so we have this call to take the birth of this child to heart, to know that God himself comes alongside us. He comes alongside you. It is weird, actually, that this term wonderful counselor would be applied to the same person who is called uh, everlasting God. Mighty God, everlasting Father. A counselor has no authority. They, they sit in the court with the king or the queen and they give advice. They're there to supply wisdom and counsel to the person in authority. They're there to make the king look good. This passage says the same person who is the everlasting father is also the wonderful counselor. This is the idea that God comes alongside us, that he is present in the midst of our circumstances, good or bad, to guide us, to be present in our lives. And so we have this concept of a, of a God who is with us. And we are also called to recognize that a per, eternal peace resides within us. This aspect of a king whose reign will last forever is very explicitly stated here. There's no question that he's talking about an eternal kingdom that will last forever. And it takes root in our hearts. That's where it lives. This is the domain of this king, the human heart. And he gives us eternal peace that will never fade. And so, in our call to look to the birth of God's Son as the source of our hope, we take him to heart and we are called to rest under his authority. He is the fulfillment of all these words, of all these hopes, of all these promises, and all these dreams of peace that the human heart longs for. The birth of Jesus brings about fulfillment in every sense of the word. And I want you to notice at the very end of the passage, it, it not literally, but figuratively says, God is crazy about you. It says, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you know what God is zealous for, what he's passionate about? It's you. It's your heart. It's your forgiveness, your redemption, your restoration, your peace, love, and joy. He is crazy about you. And you are what God is after. All of this history, all of this prophecy, all of this fulfillment is about your heart and soul. He wants you. That's, to me, 
actually the most mind He would go to all that extent for our redemption. Look at us. What's he thinking? Why? And the answer is love. God's love compels him to zealously pursue his will for our good. And so the birth of his son brings joy eternal. Will you pray with me? God, our loving Father, we marvel at your word, at the incredibly intentional way that you go about laying out your plan and then fulfilling it through the birth of your son. Lord, lift our heads out of our circumstances. Get us past the hindrance of our sin and help us to look to the birth of your son to find joy for our hearts and lives and to know that we are precious and cherished in your eyes that you love us and that you will pursue us to the very end, even beyond death. Thank you for these graces and truths that you pour out upon us through your word. May we live them out in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen.